0: With over a million and a half downloads monthly, these tickets will sell out. So keep an eye on our social media pages and check the podcast bio for direct links to purchase yours as soon as they're released on Friday, May 10. I can't wait to see you there. Selling a little or a lot?
2: You have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host.
3: The producers of this podcast recognize the traditional owners of the land on which it's recorded. They pay respect to the Aboriginal elders past, present and those emerging.
0: The following podcast contains content of a graphic, violent nature and is not suitable for children.
3: Being an ex-detective, it just piqued my interest. I thought, why are these two crimes still unsolved, because most murders are solved.
4: There were only two unsolved murders in the state of Victoria in 1942, and they are heavily shrouded in mystery. These murders happened during World War II time on the Ballerine Peninsula in Queenscliff, in an area occupied by Australian troops who were patrolling and defending the coastline. Early one cold, wintry morning in late May 1942, the bullet-ridden body of army driver, Roy Willis, was found on the side of the road. He had been shot a number of times with a military revolver. In September 1942, 17-year-old gunner John Holston went missing whilst on guard duty. His body was later found further down the coast. He had also been shot in the chest with an army revolver. Former police officer and historian and researcher Bob Marmion, who lives on the Ballerine Peninsula, loves a good mystery And when he found out about these murders and that they were still unsolved, the old detective skills he'd flexed in his 15 years in the job came back to life and he spent 10 years investigating and writing a book called Murder at the Fort. Before we hear from Bob and all the twists and turns of his investigations, there's a few terms you'll hear in this interview that I'll explain for anyone who may not know. Sentry duty means being on guard A garrison is a body of troops stationed in one location, and ASIO stands for the Australian Security Intelligence Organisation. Now, here's Bob to tell us about this historical case of double murder.
3: I um, had 15 years in the police force, Victoria Police, uh, including a lot of time as a detective. So I've had a fair bit of experience in investigating murders and uh, holdups and all sorts of serious crime. Uh, when I left the police force, I went through university as a mature age student and uh, followed my love of history and eventually did a PhD in history, um, which sort of led on to my part-time work at the Fort Queenscliff as the Fort Historian. And it was there that I came across the um, the two murders in 1942, and being an ex detective, uh, it just piqued my interest. So I thought, why are these two crimes still unsolved? Because most murders are solved. So it, uh, one thing led to another.
4: Yeah, I saw that you know they were the only two murders that were unsolved in 1942, and I wonder if you're like me. I like to go through old newspaper archives and see what the unsolved murders were each year, and and then I go down this rabbit hole of research.
3: Yeah, um, it was interesting how they were the only only two that were unsolved. There were quite a few murders in 1942, including the three out murders in Melbourne, where three women were killed uh, by a US serviceman. So it really did piqued the interest um, and I was thinking well why were they unsolved and the further I looked at it I was pretty well convinced I know who did it and I think the original investigating detectives also knew who did it but just didn't have enough evidence to, to pin charge on them.
4: Now I read in a really great article about you in the book in the Geelong Advertiser that it was a scrap of paper that piqued your interest as well about this crime so tell us about that. Like, what was it on that scrap of paper?
3: Um, well, it was basically the story about the two murders. And, um, yeah, as an historian, as an ex-detective, I, I started to, to investigate it and more and more clues came came together. But it was a, almost a, a red flag, I suppose, saying, hang on, hang on, look at me, look at me. Um, but it was an outline of the murders, which got the investigative juices flowing again.
4: And you mentioned that you'd had 15 years in, in the job as a police officer and have done murder investigations. Can yeah. you let us know um, a few of the murder investigations that you were involved in and when?
3: Um, during my time at Broadbinoes, uh, there were a number of invest, number of murders there. Um, one was a, uh, a case where a, a husband murdered his wife and cut her in half and put her into postal bags. Um at uh, at Craigieburn and that was about um, 1978 Um, and then different murders at at different times but uh, not being part of a homicide squad I wasn't actually the lead detective I was just involved in the investigations so I could see how they operated and what they did.
4: With these murders I mean they were quite a long time ago and as you said it was 1942 so can you paint the scene for us Bob about where these murders took place and what was happening in Australia at the time, because it was wartime, wasn't it?
3: Yes. Well, we'd been at war for um, for over two and a half years, and um, but the war had been a long way away in Europe and and, the, and then suddenly when Japan attacked Pearl Harbor and then swept south through Asia, uh, it ended up on our doorstep in New Guinea. So the Australian um, I suppose, home life completely changed. We were put under um, close um, restrictions similar to COVID um, with curfews, uh, restrictions on food, travel. And um, because there was a threat of Japanese invasion, there was a massive increase in um, the military, especially in Victoria and places that were likely to be attacked. So the Bellarine Peninsula became a huge armed camp with thousands of soldiers, soldiers, Um, we did a a survey of defence sites and found that it had more defence sites per kilometre, square kilometre, down here on the Ballerine than anywhere else in Australia during the World World War. And um, as a result, uh, there were thousands of soldiers stationed here uh, at camps along the the Ballerine Peninsula. So in 1942, um, it was not uncommon to see a lot of soldiers. Now, these were two soldiers that... um, One was a First World War digger uh, by the name of Roy Willis, who signed up for a second go. And uh, he was stationed at uh, Point Lonsdale. And uh, he was also a transport driver. So my feeling is that he was actually approached to be involved in a black market ring, uh, bringing in things from Melbourne. Uh, All sorts of things were in short supply, Mm -hmm. from food to uh, petrol to uh, silk stockings for example um so Roy was actually um in town in Geelong on the day he was going through a number of appointments he bumped into friends he got a lift back um to camp at Queenscliff um back to or Point Lonsdale where he was stationed and never made it so he was actually found at Wallington um which is halfway between Geelong and Queenscliff uh off on a side road and um so he'd been shot a number of times. Then three months later, a 17-year-old youth, who should not have been in the army because he was underage, uh, John Holston, uh, was shot while on sentry uh, duty. And, um, yeah, the, the, uh, the shooter or the person who was involved in it uh, was one of two and both got away with the shooting and actually wounded another soldier and um, all hell broke loose. But uh, they got away.
4: Yeah, you mentioned um, you know how things changed in Victoria, um, and you mentioned the brownout killings, e- Edward mm. Leonski, because it was called that because there were restrictions on the the street lighting, weren't there? And like that's right. it, it had a brown a brown haze. Um, and e- Edward Leonski was stationed up in Parkville, I believe, in Melbourne um, yes. at the time of that. So there was just a lot of soldiers everywhere yes. in in Victoria at that time.
3: Yeah, that's right. Uh, there were soldiers everywhere. Um... There were uh, checkpoints on highways where civilian cars were pulled over, and uh, the machine guns facing them. And uh, yeah, there were camps everywhere. They really thought that uh, Victoria, especially, was was going to be attacked by the Japanese. Yeah,
4: and that and that's why there was that camp at the Ballerine Peninsula to monitor the um the the coastline.
3: Yes, uh, Fort Queenscliff and the Fort Nepean were the main uh, forts protecting. Port Phillip Bay, and supporting them were all these soldiers in case there was a land attack.
4: So would would a lot of these guys, and I'm saying guys because most of them would have been men, um, yeah. were they just sitting around doing not a lot and that's why there was this black market kind of racket thing happening?
3: Um, no, they were constantly in training and they are on guard duty. Um, like young John Holston was on a sentry duty protecting a... Uh, a, a gun battery, and um, but Roy Roy Willis was a transport driver. He was bringing in supplies from Melbourne and Geelong into the into the ballroom. So my feeling is that uh, he was also being asked to bring in a few other supplies as well. Um, yeah, because there was such a huge demand for all sorts of things. Whereas Holston was just a young bloke. Um, he was on guard duty. He wasn't involved in anything like that. There was going to be an inquest into Roy Willis's death. Uh, in September 1942 and there was rumoured that a witness was going to spill the beans on who killed him. Now, that witness was supposed to have been on guard duty at uh, Fort Queenscliff when he suddenly got called over to the other side to Port Nepean to do a course and Holston took his place on the guard duty roster. But that was a last-minute decision. So I think Holston was actually in the wrong place at the wrong time. And he was mistaken for the, the witness who was going to spill the beans.
4: Wow. So a mistaken identity murder. Yeah.
3: yeah. Because mm-hmm. when it really happened, he was uh, it was about three o'clock in the morning and he was wearing a balaclava, or a full face one. Um, he was wearing an overcoat. He was wearing a helmet. And all you could see really were his eyes and his nose. And he was shot uh, from about 18 inches away in, in the chest. So my feeling is that he walked out of the sentry box Heard a noise, turned around and was shot. And then at some stage, they realized, oh no, wrong man, because they ripped the balaclava and the helmet off and threw it in the sentry box and then dragged his body down to the water when they'd realized that they'd actually shot the wrong man.
4: So was he wearing that kind of get up because it was really cold or cold. because, okay, yeah. yeah
3: very cold. Yeah. yeah.
4: Well, that's really tragic. And I mean, both the murders are tragic, but this, this was a 17 year old.
3: Yes, he should never have been in the army. And the irony is that his mother let him join up to follow his brother, on the condition that he stayed in Australia where he'd be safe.
4: Wow! And yeah. he was not safe. That's yeah. Not it's, safe at all. I think it's it's often um, a bit easy to when you're thinking about really old crimes to look at it um, a bit clinically. And I think when we talk about this stuff, especially the nature of how he was murdered, it does make you think that you know these crimes like affect you know families they are, are traumatic and i think it's really important to to remember that
3: that's right yeah yeah especially a young 17 year old um but it was what was interesting about this this case was especially Holson's with twists and turns and the family um never really knew what had happened they were given some information by the, by the army in 1942. But after I'd written the book, I had family members coming in and saying, Oh, well, that explains a lot. Now we know what really happened. And because uh, there were so many twists and turns, and this is why it took 10 years to actually write the book. Just when I thought I had it worked out, um, more information would come along, another witness would pop up. And I think, Oh, here we go again. It's, it's not what I thought. Um, For example, um, Holston was actually dragged, his body was dragged down to the beach about 75 metres away from the sentry box and he was thrown in the water and he wasn't found for another 10 days. So when he was found, the only damage to the body was that his nose had been eaten away by sea lice. But there was no other visible signs. Now... um, that, that area is actually notorious for sea loss and any bodies that are left in the water quickly get turned into eat down to the bone or attacked by sharks and yet Tolson had no damage on him.
4: So, so what, what does that mean, Bob? Does it, it, they couldn't work out how he was murdered or like what does that mean uh, that he had no damage?
3: Well, he, he was definitely murdered by a shot to the chest, um, pierced the heart, but was the body in the water for 10 days.
4: Interesting. So where was the body then before that?
3: That's the big question. So which then leads to the question, next question is why would the killers keep him on land for 10 days and then dump him 10 days later in the water?
4: What, or, what's your thoughts about that?
3: I have no idea. I can't work that one out. <laughs> we have debated that one, you know, nonstop, and it's just we can't come to the suit, come to any conclusion. We just can't work it out. But where it was interesting was the autopsy report uh, showed limited damage to the nose. And when I went to the Forensic Medicine uh, Institute of Forensic Medicine in Melbourne and said, "Look, would you like to comment on this?" They originally showed a lot of interest, and then suddenly said, "No, I'm not going to make a comment."
4: Wow. Why was that? Do you think?
3: I don't know. Don't
4: know. <laughs> all these, all these mysteries.
3: I don't so- know. And this is where it gets yeah, very frustrating. There were so many mysteries. Yeah.
4: So like, when, when Holston was, when he, he obviously went missing, he was meant to be on guard. He's obviously gone. Did people think he'd um, absconded?
3: Yes, and uh, that was the original idea. When, he was, when he, um, they went searching for him, uh, two things popped up which were very unusual. One, that his trousers were actually on the, on the beach. Um, and they thought that he'd changed into civvy clothes and he'd, he'd shot through um, So when he was found, he was uh, in his full uniform except his trousers. But we don't know why why that happened. But the other really interesting thing is when they searched for him, they found Japanese footprints.
4: I read this. Yeah. This, is, this is very yeah. fascinating. Can you explain about this? Because... They thought they were cow footprints.
3: Yes. There was, when the sentry went missing, what they should have done was turn out the whole garrison with all the searchlights and said, look, there's possibility of an attack here. And the army didn't. They were really negligent in this way. And what they did was they sent out a few people just as a search party and said, look, just have a look around see if you can find it. And one fellow by the name of Sid Finnegan, who was another 17-year-old in the army, uh, under a false name. Um, he grew up on a, a dairy farm at Colac and he's searching around and he comes across all these cow prints in the sand. And he thought, well, what are the, why are cow prints here in the sand? It's heavily defended, there's barbed wire entanglements, there's no food, no water for a cow. And he reported it um, and got uh, taken straight back to Fort Quonset and put in a guardhouse and said, look, um, don't talk to anybody and sudden or not long afterwards but uh, two very burly um detective types who said they were from military intelligence came down and said okay now tell us what you're seeing. and when he drew the picture of the cow print they looked at each other and started swearing and said what's going on what you know what do you want to do and um he said look at you know, in the war, and he said, Oh, I want to fight Japanese. And said I said, Okay, we'll make you a commando. So when he um, went through his training and got sent up to New Guinea and came ashore, he said, Oh, cow prints. And then it suddenly dawned on him they weren't cow prints, but they were actually what they called Tabi boots. And a Tabi boot was distinctive Japanese footwear, which has a split toe, similar to a cow print. And it leaves basically the same footprint. And Japanese were the only only military forces or naval forces which used the tarby boots. And there they were all over the sand at Queenscliff.
4: Wow. So that's another red herring, I feel. Yes. Um, So
3: did the Japanese kill the sentry? Which then raises the question, did they come ashore three months earlier and kill Roy Willis? Because the same weapon was used in both murders.
4: Okay, so we've got two. We've got two possibilities here: that these two uh, men were murdered because they wouldn't get involved in some black market shenanigans,
3: yeah. yeah,
4: or they were targeted by Japanese who had infiltrated the shoreline. Yes. Okay, so now my head's going. Presumably, did the army intelligence people say, "Hey, what do you want to do? You want to be a commando? Let's make this happen." Was that for his silence?
3: Yes, they threatened him with. Uh, treason, he'd be charged with treason if he spoke to anybody about this. And they said, well, make your commando because you won't survive the war. You'll be dead in 12 months. The the high attrition rate with commandos was a good way to shut him up. But um, when I spoke to him, he was in his 80s and he said, what can they do to me now? So he told me the story.
4: Wow. So you spoke to him?
3: Yeah, I interviewed Sid Finnegan. Yeah.
4: That's brilliant. And yeah. can you explain, Bob, um, about what, what treason is and what it was like in the context of back then? Because it was extremely serious. I mean, people yes. were hung for it, weren't they?
3: Yes. Well, it's crimes against the state uh, where you put the, um, the country's security at risk or, um, or something like that. And uh, by talking about Japanese landing, it would have set the cat amongst the pigeons. Because the last thing that the, the army wanted to do was said, well, Japanese have come in, infiltrated the whole fort and the whole defence system, and it's useless. So I'm not convinced that the Japanese were there because there was another angle to it that um, the special operations executive, which were putting spies into Europe, were actually coming up with a, um, a rubber sole that they could put over the top of their shoes to give the impression that somebody else was there. So did a commando raid come in, test the defences, and the only way to let the army know that you've actually been breached was to leave behind a sign? Now, there's no way known, in my opinion, that a commando would have shot Holston. I think it was just coincidence. I think the whole thing about the, the footprints was a red herring. It's just pure coincidence that it was on the same night that Holston was killed. I still think Holston was killed by mistake because they thought he was actually going to be the witness to give evidence against uh, identifying uh, Willis's killers from three months earlier. Wow. Yeah, I think it was just the biggest coincidence of the, the war.
4: It's fascinating for you as a researcher <laughs> and writer.
3: Yes, yeah, yeah.
4: Um. Let's talk about Willis, um, who was the first murder victim. He was older. Um, yep. How old was he?
3: Uh, born in 1998, so he would have been 44 when he was killed. Uh, a, uh, a veteran of the First World War, and uh, he survived physically uh, intact, but I think he would have suffered from PTSD. Looking at um, the horrors of the First World War, especially in France, he came back as a was pretty damaged Um, He went on the road for uh, quite a few years doing farming, labouring, and ended up um, at Passchendaele, out near Casterdon, where a few mates from the First World War had set up farms. And um, he was helping a mate out, and the mate died from appendicitis, leaving a young family behind. So rather than see them lose the land, he he worked it for them. And, um, yeah, so everything pointed to... So Willis as being a, a fine, upstanding, uh, decent sort of bloke who uh, just wouldn't do anything wrong. And um, I just think he was yeah, put in a very difficult position and he obviously said, no, I'm not interested. And I think he was shut up.
1: Selling a little or a lot?
2: You have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods,
4: When was he discovered? When was his body discovered or when did they know he was missing?
3: Uh, That was in May 1942, the end of May, I think the 28th of May. Could be wrong there. Um, And um, people going past on their way to work saw a a body with an overcoat and they thought it was a soldier asleep on the side of the road. And when they had a closer look, they saw it was actually a body uh, and he'd been shot a number of times. So they pinpointed the time of death at about 2.45 that morning, a farmer and uh, uh, the wife of a farmer um, living about 200 yards away heard a number of shots and uh, she thought originally it was somebody else shooting, but she pinpointed the time of the shooting.
4: And had he been missing for a while before he was found?
3: No, no, he... um, He'd been out the day before. He had a leave pass to go to Geelong and uh, to see a solicitor Um, and caught up with a number of friends and got a lift out to the East Geelong tram terminus where he was being picked up to be taken back to camp. Um, He'd organised to get a lift for another soldier. So uh, the last anybody saw him alive, uh, other than the killers, was uh, at 1am and he was shot closer to 3am. So he hadn't been gone very long.
4: Did you ever find out why he was going to see the solicitor in Geelong?
3: No. Um, supposition is that he was... Um, they, the Army had a system where soldiers could get free legal advice if they had any problems, whether it be um, marriage or uh, business or, or anything like that. And um, I think that uh, Willis was trying to sell his cartridge business at uh, Casterton. He had a truck where he was doing a lot of, lot of work and he was getting illegal advice. And there was a, um, a, a solicitor in Geelong who was offering that advice. Yeah.
4: And what would have been the, the penalties for the people involved in this black market racket if it came out who was involved? What would have happened to them?
3: I'm not sure what the exact penalties were, but they'd be facing considerable fines or jail time. Uh, depending on how serious it was.
4: So there was a lot at stake for these people. I mean, so much at stake that they resorted to murder.
3: Pretty well, yeah.
4: Hmm. Wow. And I, I wonder if, um, well, Willis, I wonder if he thought that that he was in danger when he said, no, I'm not going to do that.
3: Um, I don't know if he would really thought about it. Now, this is all supposition about the black market, but I'm, I'm looking at, what was happening in Geelong and uh, the bell Rain, and looking at Willis, it's a, it's a possibility.
4: A strong possibility you believe?
3: Yep. Mm.
4: So let's talk about the process of the book. Cause you said that it took you 10 years to write. And I know that you have done exhaustive research and you even managed to access some highly classified files. Yes. So when did you think, right? I think I need to write a book about this. Like, at what point were you in the research?
3: Uh, Pretty much early on. um, I knew that there was a story that needed to be told um, and I was surprised that it hadn't been told. So the more research that came to light, the more evidence I thought I had, but it was the twists and turns. Um, Just when I had it worked out, something else would come along. Like I had, um, as a result of uh, an article in uh, Geelong 80, um, it was sent over to a fellow over at um, Frankston Way and he got in touch and he rang up and he said I'm the killer, I'd like to confess to it and I said, oh dear, <laughs> what do I do now? <laughs> and it turns out he was dying from cancer and he wanted to get it off his chest and um, he, t- it turns out it wasn't a killer he was getting mixed up with a fight that he'd had with a soldier, and, a sol- and the other soldier was badly hurt. But it was a completely separate incident. Um, so things like this were happening. Um, I had other people ring up and say, Look, I was, uh, one lady said I was Holston's uh, um, brother's girlfriend, and I knew John Holston really well. And uh, she described him and what he was like, and, uh, you know, a nice young kid. Um, so, Lots of other people were, were turning up with all stories, yeah, and it just kept growing and growing and growing. Yeah. What
4: were some of the other twists and turns that, that set you, you know, um, set you off your path that you thought you were on?
3: Um, the biggest one was obviously the, the damage to the body because Holston's body was put in the water and the tides were moving. He was found about 400 metres away from where the body was dumped in the water. It shouldn't have taken 10, 10, weeks, uh, sorry, 10 days to move 400 metres because the tide moves a lot faster than that. So even if the t- the body was coming in and out uh, with the tides, it should have been jagging on barbed wire. It should have been jagging on rocks. It should have been a lot more damage than what it was. Um, one of the things was the the same weapon being used in both murders. Um, there was, uh, I got onto a fellow who was the police photographer and he was involved in the testing of the, um, the weapons and he said they tested hundreds and hundreds of, of same calibre weapons um, but couldn't find the actual weapon. By coincidence, uh, two weeks before Hulse, uh, sorry, Willis was killed, a, an officer went to a pub just down a row from the fort and had his revolver stolen and it was the same type. So we tried to track that down and it didn't come to anything.
4: Was the book published when the Geelong um, Advertiser article came out?
3: No, the, the book was published in 2016 um, and the 80 came out a few years before that.
4: Very yeah. handy, obviously. So you got yes. you got a fair bit of contact from that article?
3: Oh, yes. Yeah. Quite a few people put their hand up to, to help. Yeah.
4: Well, the very strategic of you, Bob, there. I think that was smart.
3: <laughs> it came in very handy. Yeah.
4: Um, and you, you, you researched since you um, left the police force, and you went and did your PhD. Yep. Um, you, you researched that—that is what you do. Um, what kind of research work are you involved in? Obviously, th- this one where you wrote the book, but what else do you do?
3: Uh, write commissioned histories. Uh, wrote, wrote a history of local government in the uh, Western Victoria from the, uh, the 1850s all the way through. Uh, to the present day, so that was an interesting one. Um, I've just completed another book on my time in the police force about uh, dealing with PTSD uh, and going through some pretty horrendous experiences. Um, yeah, I, I work with uh, archaeologists doing background reports, um, things like that. Yeah.
4: It's, it's, it sounds like absolutely fascinating work, and, yes, congratulations on your new book that's out, which... Um, yeah, I think will be really interesting for people to read about your experience with PTSD, which we know from speaking to people on this podcast, you know, it does affect people in many ways, especially first responders. Yes. Um, can you give us a little bit of a um, taster of what
3: what's in the book and what, what it's called? Uh, it's called The Price We Pay, and it, it deals with if I was a cat, I would have used up eight out of nine lives. Um, so I'm... Barely survived. Um, I started off as a very young, naive 18-year-old in 1976. Um, And then 15 years later, I was a really battered, scarred penny. I was discharged on health grounds. Uh, I had drug and alcohol addictions. I was um, in all sorts of trouble. And at the same time, I suddenly became a sole parent. So uh, I had to completely... Yeah, turned my life around and, um, yeah, I did that. Um, but it was pretty hard.
4: Um, amazing. So was, was your, um, you know, getting into adult education and doing this work, was that part of your recovery?
3: Um, pretty well, yes. Yeah. I, um, when I left the police force I, um, and I, my young son with me, I, I thought I've really, I can't just sort of wallow in self-pity here, I've got to do something. And I moved into um, adult training um, as a uh, manager of an RTO, a registered training organisation, and uh, which led into school teaching. So, um, yeah, I'm a teacher as well as an historian.
4: What was your, your tipping point with your um, well, what you now know was PTSD? Was there a, a, an incident or was it just a number of incidents that
3: happened? There were quite a few incidents. Like I said, i used up eight out of nine lives. I should have been dead eight times. Um, and that's involved with uh, people shooting at me. I, I was lucky I survived. But the final one was in Bendigo um, where a fellow who was armed um, had uh, come into Victoria from New South Wales. And uh, when he, I caught up with him, he, he was actually... Um, taking a leak in a a, a waist up, and um, he turned his back and reached into his belt as if he was going to turn around with a revolver, and I had my revolver pointing straight at him, and uh, luckily, I don't know what, just something in the back of my head said, don't shoot him. You know, you would have been justified. Turned out he wanted suicide by cop. and I said, no, that's enough
4: yeah it's all those um I mean those multiple encounters with um these things that you do in the police I mean you know every day you're potentially facing danger it's you know it's a lot for someone to bear um how did you go with getting better from the drug and alcohol dependence
3: very hard um it took a long time but I just had to wean myself off um and I, I yeah, the one thing about it is that I got no support from the police force when I left. I did this all on my own.
4: And it sounds like they are far more evolved in support for officers now than back then, I guess, probably because of the nature of policing and first yeah. responders' personalities, it's kind of like suck it up. I don't know.
3: Yeah, well, back in back in my day, it was like, let's go to pub, let's get pissed and uh, get back on a horse tomorrow, see you back at work. Uh, now there is a lot more support i'm involved with the uh, police peer support program which is working with uh, people with ptsd uh, there's a lot more support and yeah a lot more understanding a lot more help as it should be yeah
4: yeah it's funny i was talking to um uh a social worker who works with prison officers exactly about that about ptsd in prison offices and that Old thought about yeah, just just get back on, you know, just just even though they have faced potentially life threatening and very traumatic situations with the prison the prisoners that they, you know, they look after and yeah, just that attitude doesn't serve anyone. But what do you do? You've just got to keep going on.
3: That's right. You just have to keep going, and eventually became too much in my case. I had fifteen years of it, and I couldn't uh, do any more. Yeah, it sounds
4: like it sounds like this is such a great fit for you, this kind of work.
3: Yeah, yeah, it is. Uh, look, I, I had a great time in the police force as far as I love my work as a detective. I just didn't realise it was going to kill me at some stage. Um, but I look at the skills and I transferred the investigative skills into being an historian. Um, and it was like, it was funny when I found out about the murder at the fort, the, the two murders, I... Um, it was almost like I slipped back into the old Mo, the old Bob, <laughs> and uh, straight away the investigative juices started flowing again. It was funny. Yeah.
4: And I'm really keen to find out more about this document that you got access to because I think these are so fascinating when you you know that there's something out there and it's you're getting blocked from accessing it. Tell us about the information that you had to really work hard to get for this um for this book.
3: Well. One of the the problems, or one another one of the twists, was that the police files had disappeared. So a lot of the material came out of the um, state archives, the public records office. Um, but when I tried to access the police files, um, they disappeared. They just weren't there. So if a murder is unsolved, it stays within the police force, the, the file. And then if it's solved, it gets filed into the state archives. So every other murder for 1942, all the files were in the public records, except for those two. So I thought, well, where are they? And um, I started to make inquiries. And um, by coincidence, the, somebody, in, as a result of the Geelong Addy article, um, gave information to the police and they started investigating again only to find I had no information. So they came to me and said, can we have a look at your files? (laughs) So I said, yeah, fine, (laughs) go for it. But that's all they had. They couldn't actually find anything. So when um, I started making further inquiries, somebody said that ASIO, when it was formed after the Second World War, took over certain files that had had national security ramifications. And perhaps they had it. So I got into ASIO and they said to, in no uncertain terms, very impolitely, go away. And I was like, well, that's not very nice. So I made a, um, an inquiry um, through the National Archives and Sid Finnegan's file had been marked a secret, do not release. And uh, I ended up getting access to it. So all these years later, he, even his file was completely sealed. But where the police files is, we don't know.
4: Wow. Maybe it's in someone's garage or something or some family member's got a box of stuff they haven't looked at.
3: No, I looked at that. <laughs> Tracked down all the detectives in the case, Looked at, spoke to their families, checked your garages. No. Because we yeah. thought the same thing that maybe after they retired they took the files home. No.
4: Yeah. I, I know yeah. for a fact, because I've actually spoken to her, a retired detective who had his still had his police notebooks from a particular case yeah. that he said, <laughs> so I, I shouldn't actually have them, but yeah, it's for an, uns- an unsolved murder that I've been uh, trying to investigate. I mean, the, if I go by what has yeah. been said, the perpetrator is actually dead now, but still it's fascinating. Like, you know, yeah. like what happened. So I'm, I'm little bit, that's my little side side project among many, but um,
3: yeah, I, so we don't know where the files are. Mm. It could be, even the the homicide squad uh, a few years ago couldn't find them.
4: Wow. Yeah, I think there's a lot of stuff that, you know, has gone missing. And now with, you know, now with this really huge renewed interest in true crime, I mean, there's mm. so many ways to talk about that. People are probably requesting things and they're thinking, oh, we can't find that. That's a yes. bit of an issue.
3: Yeah, that's right. Yeah.
4: Um, and, you know, as well as this being a really fascinating historical research project, you've actually given voice to two victims who haven't had one and the families who never really got the information. Can you talk to me about your thoughts about that?
3: That was uh, Roy Willis's family we couldn't track down. Um, there's just there doesn't seem to be any descendants now. That, but uh, Holston's family uh, are still in the Western District and, uh, and they were very supportive. They gave a lot of help as far as photographs and background material about the family. And and I, and I just wanted to know what happened. Because I'd only have dribs and drabs over the years. But to finally actually read the story about what happened uh, gave them a lot of closure. And they were, they were very uh, help uh, thankful for that.
4: And I imagine um, because it was the army and the time people don't push too hard, do they? If they're told, this is all we can tell you, yep. people don't push that hard. Whereas now if it happened, I think people would have more of a voice to be yes. pushing pushing for information. And it was a sign of the times and I guess our our deference to authority probably.
3: Yeah. The army um, covered up a, a very big mistake as far as the the murders. Um, when a sentry a such as Holston goes missing, They should have called out the garrison. They should have turned on all the searchlights. They should have, um, really, everybody should have stood too, just in case there was an attack and somebody had killed the sentry as they were breaking in. They did nothing. The army did absolutely nothing. They sent out a few soldiers and uh, said, have a look around. So there was a huge cover-up. Now, that cover-up went all the way to the Deputy uh, Prime Minister, Frank Ford, who was also the army minister in Canberra, and, uh, and he said, what is going on down at Queenscliff? So the army did not support the police. They did not help the families. They just basically shut it down as, as national security. And even when I got onto the army files later on, there were so many pages missing that I had to find in other sources like the um, coronial records, for example. Um, but there was a huge cover-up.
4: So the police were genuinely very, very um, determined to solve these murders?
3: Oh, yes, Yep. Yeah. Two of the best detectives, um, Sid McGuffey, who'd solved the Brown Act murders, um, was involved and uh, they tried their hardest and I'm convinced that they knew who the killers were, they just didn't have enough evidence to charge them.
4: Thanks to our guest, Bob Marmion, His books are Murder at the Fort and The Price We Pay, which is about his experience with post-traumatic stress disorder. If you have been affected by anything discussed in this episode, you can phone Lifeline on 13 11 14. Thanks for listening. We'll be back next week.
1: This has been another Smartfella production in conjunction with the ACAST Creator Network. Cool fact a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget friendly coverage for you. Learn more at uh1.com.
5: Planning for your next trip?